0: We've all been there. We feel like life is coming at us so fast that it's really easy to get overwhelmed. So when the pastor shows up on Sunday and he's like, hey, we're in this series called Rooted. It's about being rooted in these seven rhythms, these seven habits of the church. And the pastor says, hey, we're talking about serving today. I guarantee some of you are like, don't talk to me about serving because right now I'm a little overwhelmed in my life. I have a lot to do, right? I mean, who doesn't have a lot to do? Don't raise your hand, right? We all do. But I want to talk today about this text from Acts chapter 6. So open up your Bibles. Open up your notes. There's some significant things I want to show you today. And we're going to talk about this. And our goal is this. I don't want to overwhelm you, but I do want to invite you that thriving churches is where everyone serves together to reach more people with the story and the truth of Jesus. And how we say it at our church is this. It's about all of us are serving to display the irresistibility of Jesus so that people's lives are transformed that's what we want to do so open up to acts chapter chapter 6 um in your in this series that we're doing um high schoolers i see you up there you're doing the same thing we're doing with rooted they're just doing it in their high school groups so when we talk about prayer we don't talk about it we spend 90 minutes alone with god right some of y'all did that that prayer experience so when we talk about serving In your groups and in your high school groups, you're gonna have opportunities to serve. My community group, we had to postpone ours because of the rain, and so we gotta get back to it next week. But we don't wanna just talk about these things. We wanna practice them. And by the way, just because your community group does a service project or spends a Saturday doing something, that's fantastic. That's to give us a taste of serving. It's to whet our appetites to live a life where we find our purpose in helping other people. Now, by the way, if your group does a serving opportunity or when you do your serving opportunity, take pictures of it. We want to see it. And you can either send it to info at churchonthehill.com or just hashtag us, right? Church on the Hill, sj. all right? You with me still? Take a picture. We want to see it. Um, now, in the book of Acts, we're in chapter six. Now, what's been going on here? In the book of Acts, Jesus is resurrected and then this church starts and they just keep telling the story of Jesus and there's a crazy impact. Thousands of people are becoming Christians. They're having a huge impact in this city of Jerusalem where they're at and it's starting to spread. But they have an enemy the same way that we have an enemy. You have an enemy that wants to keep you from serving, keep you from making an impact in the world and keep people from hearing the story of Jesus. This enemy, the scriptures call him the devil, call him Satan. He's one who steal, kills, and destroys life. And we want you to find life in Christ. This is how the enemy worked, okay? I gave you four things in there. Two of them we're going to talk about today. Two of them we've already talked about. Here's the first one. Um, the enemy, the attacks of Satan to impede the impact of the church was first this. He just wanted to silence us. He wanted to silence the Christians by threats and persecution. You remember that, right? They being Peter and John and they're like, listen, stop telling the story of Jesus or else. Well, that didn't work. And instead of threats, all of a sudden, all of these apostles are brought in and they are jailed and flogged, right? With a whip 39 times, the flesh of their back torsos is ripped apart, scarred for life. Why? Both the Jewish community and the Roman community wanted to keep them quiet now, when, when the outside forces attack and that doesn't work, you know what happens at that point, right? The attack has to come from within. And the attack was this. It was trying to get, it's trying to blow up. I'm sorry. The second one is this. It's tempting Christians to compromise. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Where Remember Ananias and Sapphira? They were part of the church, but all of a sudden they're like, hey, we're giving all of this. And they're like, you're totally lying to us. And God literally strikes them dead. The third one, that's an attack in a church, and it's pretty prevalent today too. It's blowing up an offense in the church. What I mean by that is this, come on, we we live in a world that is easily offended. And if we're really, really honest, just look in the mirror. That person staring back at you gets pretty easily offended too. I do. And I can allow those offenses to really blow apart this community. Here's the fourth one. We're gonna talk about these more. It's distracting the church from their mission by overwhelming them. Let me show you where all of these come into play. Acts chapter six. And honestly, if you feel a little overwhelmed today and you're you already hearing me, I'm gonna give you an invitation. Find your purpose in life. Find your purpose in life by serving because you will never be the same when you see when your efforts changes somebody's life. We're gonna be in Acts chapter six. Let me read this to you. We're going to read the the whole section, and then I'll just tell you where we're headed. Chapter 6, verse 1. You got your Bibles? Hold them up if you got your Bibles. Come on. Digital paper? I don't care. Whatever. I'm old school. I go paper. Here we go. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews—we'll explain that in a um, minute—the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, uh, Parmenas and Nicholas from, the, from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented the, these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So here's what we're gonna talk about today. There's a problem. And in the midst of this problem, they give us a principle and this principle leads to a solution and this solution leads to a result that's the four things we're going to talk about they're in your notes if you want to follow along here we go the church at this moment is experiencing two problems and it is right there in verse 1 in those days the number of disciples was what increasing it was getting bigger so the problem, the first is, they're getting overwhelmed. What do we do with all of these people? How There's problems that arise because we're getting overwhelmed in the midst of this. And the other was, these Hebraic Jews among them, they complained. The two problems that they had were being overwhelmed and being offended. That's what's happening in this text. By the way, if you want to offend someone, you want to make someone mad, just treat their mama bad. Right? That's what's happening here. In this story, uh, this Jerusalem church, it had two kinds of widows. It had the the Hebrew widows, and then it had what's called the Hellenistic widows. That simply means this, they were Greek. They were Greek in their culture. They were Greek in their language. How did these Greek widows get there? During the, the history of the Roman people, they were dispersed all the time. Enemies would come in and conquer them. And from Jerusalem, they would go to live in all different places because of the persecution. Now, when a a, a married woman, when her husband died, often she would move back to Jerusalem to this sacred city and she would live out her final days in this sacred place. Often her family might be back there, but often she might not even have family. She would just go back there to live in this holy city knowing that there was a group of people who would care for her. In this situation, the problem is this. These Hellenistic Jews who've been living in the Greek communities and even in Asia, uh, excuse me, Asia Minor and in Greece and even down in Egypt, they would have adopted the language of the people where they lived. They no longer spoke Hebrew or Aramaic. So they were identified by how they spoke. They would also go to these Greek-speaking synagogues. Because that's the language they had. Their Bible was known as the Septuagint. It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew text, the Old Testament. Now, these Greek speakers, they would also pick up all these customs of the Greeks as well. So they were not just Greek speaking, they were Greek by culture. Now, y'all know how to pick out a Greek person. Like, they're easy to identify today, and they're easy to identify in the first century, right? They're the ones who are walking around with Windex bottles. With, with healing their ailments, right? I know there's some, sorry, high school, we'll explain that to you later. It's, it's an old movie. Um, these widows, they're vulnerable back then. They needed help with the basic necessities of life. And these, these widows are converting to the Christian faith. And all of a sudden, there's so many of them there. And then in their daily distribution of food, Maybe because the Hebrew women spoke Hebrew or spoke Aramaic, that those that were doling out the food, that they, they spoke the same language so it was easy to get them what they needed. But when the Greek-speaking widows showed up, or maybe when the people went to them to serve them, maybe there was a language barrier, or maybe there was just flat-out prejudice. in the church. Oh, those, those Greek speakers. Those sellouts. Yeah, they left, and now they're coming back, and now they want help. And the murmuring is getting loud enough that it reaches the ears of the twelve. And there's this conflict. There's this offense. You know, it's interesting. Um, just a quick story. Years ago, I heard about this this guy who left our church, and he took his family with him too, because he was offended. My natural thought was, man, what did I say? <laughs> right? Must have been me, right? Um, come to find out, it wasn't me at all. Uh, the story was this. He wanted to borrow a pop-up from the church. You know, a pop-up gives you a little shade, the canopy type of things. Um, he wanted to borrow one. And whoever had responsibility for that said, you know what, we're using them. Or I, I, Honestly, I don't have all the details to this. Like, We can't let, loan this to you because of whatever reason. And he was like, you know... I give money to the church. I should be able to use one of those for this family party gathering that we're having. And he was offended. So he left the church and he took his family with him over an $80 pop-up. The church is about the mission of changing people's lives, about reaching a world so that They don't have a destiny separated from God, but that they can be adopted into God's family and their destiny changed. And we get offended over an $80 pop up. I would love to tell you that that story is so odd and so unique and so weird and hasn't happened in other places, but it happens. Why? Because we get easily offended by people. The mission of the church, I mean, Jesus made it super clear. Listen to this. He said, As I have loved you, so you must. Oh, you don't know that verse? As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Jesus prayed the very last prayer that he makes on the earth before he goes to the cross. He says, Father, may this group of people be united. May they be one as you and I are one. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you. Oh yeah, you got that verse. Good, good, good. If you love one another. And then Jesus gives them this mission, right? Go and make disciples of all these nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything. We get this mission. And somehow in the midst of this, people get offended. So the murmuring grows to the point where the 12 start hearing it, verse two. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together and they said this, it's not right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. This is the first time that the 12 are called the 12. Usually they're called apostles or the disciples, but they're called the 12. And it's the first time that the whole group of of church are called disciples. That term disciples is this. That means that you are trying to become like someone else. You're a disciple of a person and your life is starting to look more like his. And that person would be Jesus. Yeah, 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 good, good. You're with me. Yeah, his name is Jesus. In this moment, they say this, listen, what we're to do, what God called us to do is prayer and the ministry of the word. And and I'm going to lean into this principle and I want to gather you all together and I want to put it back in your lap because the principle is this, everyone serves. There are no people on the sidelines of the church. Everyone serves. Question for you, why is it not right? For them to choose tables over the word? I mean, this can be easily misconstrued. Do you think that those 12 were like, that's inferior work? That, that, that's a work that we don't need to do. Do you think they're being lazy? Do you think they're being proud? Or did they have a godly sense of this? We can't do everything, so we're not doing that. That's a problem that you brought to us. So let me put it back in your lap so that you can solve it. Maybe they had a godly sense that all the work in the church shouldn't be done by the 12. I've been been pastoring some form or another for 30 years. Let me explain this to you in, um, in a way that I don't think words are going to do justice, but I just want to describe to you for a moment what the weight is of prayer and the ministry of the word. Uh, When I was 18 years old, I had a sense that God was calling me to ministry. And honestly, it came through uh, some weird circumstances at a camp. I've told this story before, but the concept was I got to see that my life got to impact a group of guys and I was like, what, what greater thing could I ever do with my life? And going into college at that moment, a couple weeks later, I was like, God, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to do ministry. And if you want me to do something else, make it clear. But until then, I think this is what you're calling me to. Now, reaching people with the story of Jesus, being involved in people's life, I will tell you this, it's the most exhilarating and fulfilling thing I've ever done with my life. And it is also the most frustrating and exhausting and heartbreaking thing I've ever done with my life. Because the weight of prayer and the ministry of the word is you're trying to take this story of Jesus that will change them, that will give them hope, that will give them eternity, and your words will be judged by the very people you're trying to save. See, anyone who gets into ministry, they understand that lost people, it's not like, hey, they're just lost at Disneyland. No, they're lost outside of God's family. And the weight of that you will carry. And the very people you're trying to help will look at you and go, why are you being so judgmental? Because I have a truth you don't know about. You're going to speak a message with care and compassion, but it will not always be received well. And on top of that, you're going to realize that people will judge who God is by your words and your actions, and you will humbly be caught by your own failures and faults. The weight of that is tremendous. I think some of you feel that. And I think the 12 felt that. And so they simply said, we can't do everything. We have to do what God called us to. But I already know this. There's a huge temptation in this. When these disciples when they bring this need to the 12 they're like listen this is a problem and we need your help only you can solve this it's so tempting to step in and be the hero isn't it do people come to you at work and like hey would you help us with this you're so good at this you're so smart you're so this you're so that we need your help it's so easy to just step in and be the hero like yes let me solve that for you and no one ever says it like that. I don't know why I did that. It's just, you know. And it's tempting to step in and be the hero in a situation. But where do those people go next time there's a problem? You never gave them authority. You just solved their problems for you. And they're going to come back to you again and again and again. So they say this, brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. Now pause for just a moment. Don't pick people who are good at waiting on tables. Pick spiritually mature people. You don't need a warm body. What you need are spiritually mature people, followers of Christ who have proven track records, people who are full of the spirit and wisdom. And we will turn this responsibility over to them and give our attention to prayer and ministry of the word. Instead of solving their problem, they're like, "No, no, no. Let's raise up some spiritual leaders and they delegate this important task to them." Now, question. Have you ever complained about something in church? Maybe not to me, maybe not maybe to your community group or maybe it's just to yourself. You know what this church should do. They should really Careful. Because of this Recognize these people brought a complaint and it turned into a calling. When I was 18, someone said this, like, hey, we need to, no one wants to go take these middle school boys to camp. I was like, seriously, why can't you get anybody? How about you do it? All right, let's roll. That was over 30 years ago. And it was that moment that I believe that God took my heart and wrapped it around changing people's lives. Listen, if you're taking notes, your complaint might be the beginning of your calling. Your holy discontent, your holy dissatisfaction with something in the church. You know what? I, I know that we got single moms today in the church and like somebody should really do something about that. Somebody should help them. Someone should support them. We got some seniors in the church. You know what? Somebody should really rally that group together. We should really do Really? Because the very thing that you might complain about might be the thing that God is calling you to. So here's their solution. Their solution is this. Let's unleash leaders. They didn't go look for volunteers. They unleashed leaders. Listen to this. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known full of spirit and wisdom. We're going to turn this responsibility over to them. We're not going to tell them what to do. We're going to give them the responsibility and then we're going to give our attention to prayer and ministry of the word. I love it when they say this, when they turn the responsibility over to them. Now, in our church, I will say this. We mess this up sometimes as leaders, and I'll, I'll just admit it. Admit this. This is my confession to you. Churches often recruit volunteers. Sometimes you hear it in the announcements here on Sunday morning. The host says, Hey, talents. He's like, Hey, we'd love to get some volunteers to do this. From this day moving forward, I would like to do it as this as a church. I want to make a shift. I want to stop recruiting volunteers. I have directors and pastors in our ministry right now that are panicking. Our children's ministry director, Bryce, he's like, no, 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 we need volunteers, pastor. Don't say that. No, no, you don't want volunteers because of this. Volunteers or sometimes as we like to refer to them as voluntolds, because they just, they wait to be told what to do. I am a volunteer. What do you want me to do? You're a voluntold. Voluntolds are given a task. Leaders are given authority. This responsibility, this is yours. By the way, it's so less meaningful to show up and be told what to do than to say, hey, there's this situation. We would love for you to step into it. Why don't you see how God might use your life to impact somebody else? See, a message like this you read Acts chapter 6 in this first like distribution, this delegation of, of leadership. And the pastor can preach this in such a way they're like, well, let's sign up to be volunteers. I don't think we need more volunteers. We need to unleash leaders in the church. We're gonna solve problems and make, make this church better so that we're actually reaching a community. Of people, And I will say this, there are some of you who are sitting in this room today that God will call you to be pastors. You might not know it yet. It might be today. It might be some other time. But I, I will give you this advice, okay? Unsolicited advice. Let me just give this to you. God can't steer a parked car. God called me into ministry because I got off the sidelines and I went and did something. It's in serving that I think God speaks to us and said, did you see how that turned out? I took your little bit of effort and I created this kind of impact. Man, you want to take a chance, take a risk, find your purpose in life. It will be this that, that you, you just start serving. I will tell you this. Some of you that are in this room right now, you might become some of the greatest volunteer leaders in this church. I can look across this room and pick out people who've been here at this church for decades and they have served powerfully. And I can tell you, their words to me have been this. I have served for a long time. I would love to hand this to the next generation. But you see, they have ownership of this place in a way that a younger generation, you just don't realize yet that this is not their church. It is your church. God is just waiting for you to step into the role and say, I'm not a volunteer, I'm not a voluntold. I'm a person of influence, and, and I think that God can use me. Your availability truly is all God needs. It's for you to step into that. And I'll warn you, straight up front, it's a little addictive. It's addictive when you do something and you see the result of it, and you're like, wow, that worked. You see, maybe we do need a volunteer to serve in a, in a food line when we have lunches or something like that. But you see, you're not there to serve food. You're actually there to love people. And in the midst of those conversations and the camaraderie that you find, it is a slow build in the direction of expanding the kingdom of God. God can use you. Now, I'm going to have to switch gears here real quick in, a, in kind of a weird way. Um, I'm just going to make a statement and then I'm going to explain it to you because there's a historical context for this that probably none of you thought about when you read this text. Here it is. The true gospel cannot be replaced by the social gospel. The true gospel cannot be replaced by the social gospel. The late 1800s to the early 1900s, somebody coined the phrase the social gospel. It was this belief that the mission of the church was to alleviate suffering... Bring justice, equality, and reform so that God's kingdom would come here on earth. Can I just say, those are all good things. I mean, justice is very, very good. Jesus was for justice. Jesus was for alleviating suffering. But those good things were not the primary mission of the church. When Jesus was resurrected, He said, here's your mission. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. See, the problem with the social gospel is that it was trying to replace the true mission of the church. It replaced the main thing with a good thing. Anybody ever join the YMCA? Yeah? I belonged to the Y for a while. You know what that stands for, right? The Young Men's Christian Association. You know, I swam at the Y for like years. I love the Y. It's a great social club. It's a great place to work out. They had a pretty decent pool. But you know what's crazy? Never heard the gospel there. I dare you to come here on a Sunday morning and not hear the gospel at this church. Because it's the mission of this church. But see, Good things that started out in the name of Jesus when their social gospel, they become all about the social and they actually leave the gospel out. And I think in the book of Acts chapter six, this is the moment where the social gospel could have stepped in and derailed the church, but the 12 said, no, prayer and the ministry of the word, telling the story of Jesus, that's our job. That's gonna be primary. Why don't you step into a role of leadership? Y'all with me now? Both of these are good. And by the way, here's what's interesting. In the text, in your notes there, I made a note of the, this word in there, uh, diakonia. And it simply means this. It's the, in verse one, it means this distribution of food, the serving of the food. But if you look in, in verse four, it's the same word, the serving of the, it's not food, it's the word of God. I think the 12 were saying this. We're not more important than you. You're not less than we are. We're just here to serve the word of God. And you, you're going to be the one who serves up food and love and care for these people. Um, Maybe you've heard that this is the first place where where the the official position of deacon appeared in the Bible. It's actually not because there's no official position. The word deacon never appears in the book of Acts. It shows up later in in the letters to the church. But this is where we do get the word deacon from. And you maybe you have never heard that term before. It simply means this, servant. You've heard the term servant leadership? Can I tell you this? There's no other kind of leadership. It's redundant. I mean, Jesus gave us an example the night before his death. You know, he put a towel on and he, he got down on his knees and he washed his disciples' feet. And he's like, hey, this is what now that I'm going to leave. Now you go do this for each other kind of bothers me sometimes. I'm so off script right now, but I don't care. It kind of bothers me sometimes. When there's an error about pastors, they kind of have their posse with them. I love the fact that churches love to honor their pastors. It's actually a very biblical thing. I mean, I won't go into it right now, but how do you honor them? You know, taking care of them. However, I think there's an air about some pastors as if they're up here and then everybody else is down here. I'm just a servant, but so are you. And Jesus invites every single one of us to pick up the towel and serve and find our purpose. There are no small jobs because we're all servants of God. And that's our invitation this morning is this. Where will you serve? I'm not here to recruit volunteers. I want to see God unleash leaders. By the way, look at the result of this. This is amazing. In verse five, the result was harmony, maturity, and reach. Harmony, maturity, and reach. It says this pr- proposal pleased the whole group, which right there, that's a miracle, right? Come on. Y'all been around big groups before. Hey, I, we all have opinions about how this should be solved. The whole group loved it. That's a miracle. Join leadership, people tell you you're never going to make everybody happy. Apparently in verse five, they did. And they chose these guys, Stephen, Philip. And I'm not going to pronounce all those names again, right? They presented these men to the apostles who laid their hands on them. Did you know this, that all seven of those names in there, they were Greek names? Those are not Hebrew names. Do you get it? Who was being overlooked? The Greek widows, right? And you don't know if like, These are the seven that brought the complaints in. We're not sure, but we know this. Like, hey, you speak the language. You're uniquely qualified to to help out with this situation. And Stephen, he's the first one listed, and he's called this person who is full of the Spirit of God. I think it's another illustration that your complaint may actually be the beginning of your calling, and this whole group was pleased of it. And here's the result. So the Word of God spread. And the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. Some of your texts might say this, might say multiplied, which means this, that they didn't add people to the church. The church actually multiplied. It's significantly bigger growth. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. The result was this, harmony. Everybody was on board. Maturity. You saw Stephen rise up. You saw Philip rise up. And then this, this growth. By the way, does that name Stephen sound familiar? Because in the very next part of the text, Stephen stands up and he gives this speech in defense of the gospel. It is the most detailed speech in all of the book of Acts. And at the end of it, Stephen is martyred for his faith. This guy whose job was this distribution of food, he was no table waiter. He was a man of God because there are no small jobs. And he stands up and stands up for his faith and he's killed for it. Did you see the name Philip there too? You know Philip's story? He's known as Philip the Evangelist. He goes to the Samaritans and he tells the story about who Jesus and all the people start coming to faith. And in that moment, God says, I want you to go on the road to Egypt. And so he goes on this road. He runs across this Ethiopian eunuch is, is the guy's title. And he leads him to Christ. And it's, you read it. It's, it's Acts chapter 8. And then God literally transports him out of that situation once this guy is saved and baptized and puts him in another spot. Stephen, Philip, these guys are heavy hitters in the faith. And they were called to ministry at that moment. I will tell you this. When you respond to God's call in your life, there is no telling what he might do in you and through you. And they had reach. The number of, of disciples starts exploding. Now, um, you may have uh, you may have had a problem though this morning. If I say, "Hey, all right, let, let's all figure out our purpose," you just start serving, and God can't steer a parked car. So just get involved and ask Him, God, what's my purpose? How, how do you want me to serve? How can I make the greatest impact to change people's lives? But you're going to sit here and go, God, I'm overwhelmed right now. Can I be real honest? Some of y'all need to say no to some other things. If you're going to say yes to serving, you might need to say no to some other things. They might be some good things. But you might need to say no to some things. That's just very, very honest. But let me also put my finger on this. You might, at some point in your life, have been given some bad advice. The bad advice goes like this. If I do that for you, then I have to do that for everyone. You ever went to a place and you want to be let in or let in front of the line or like, you know, the TSA line that does this, and you're like, hey, listen, do I have to walk around? Can't I just walk through like right here, the line? I mean, Like you're not even cutting in line. You just don't want to walk the maze, right? And what did that TSA agent say to you? Well, if I do that for you, I have to do it for everyone. That's a lie. It's not true. I mean, when you serve people, you got a choice. You can do whatever you want. I went to uh, the Super Taqueria on Friday, grabbed a burrito for lunch. There's a lady outside. She said, can I have $2 for some food? So I said, hey, listen, if I do it for you, I got to do it for everybody. (laughs) It's stupid, right? I gave her some money. Because I want to do for the one what I wish I could do for everybody. I can't change the whole world. But I believe that God called us to Guatemala, and we're going to go make a difference there this summer. And you guys gave to that. And some of you've already signed up to go on that trip. We would love to change the whole world, but we feel that like God has called us to that. We're going to do for that one village what we wish we could do for every village. And we're going to be in there for 3, 4, maybe even 5 years working with that same village. Well, is that just unfair? I don't know and I don't care. That one village, that's where we're going. I want to do for the one what I wish I could do for everybody. I just want to say that if you feel like you're overwhelmed this morning, you can't do everything, but here it is. You must do something. Do for the one what you wish you could do for everybody. You can't do everything. So let's put the overwhelmed feeling off, and let's put off that as, as an excuse to say, we don't even need that. Like, I think sometimes that's an excuse. Like the conveyor belt's going by so fast. You're like, I can't do it all, so <gasps> I freeze, and I'm going to do nothing. You just have to do the thing that God's called you to. You just got to start serving and let him help you out. In your notes there, you're going to find a little QR code. I'm going to be super practical. I want you to shoot that on your phone, take a picture of it. And it's going to lead you to a link that is a survey. Now, what's on that survey, there's two things on there. One is this. There will be some things that are like, hey, as a church, I will let you know this is what we need. Yes, we need leaders for middle school but I don't want to recruit volunteers. I want to unleash leaders this morning because not only are there opportunities of how to serve at this church, but there's a whole series of questions that say, what do you love? What are you passionate about? What are the problems that you look at and go, you know what? Somebody should do something about that. Your complaint might be your calling. What are your skills? What's the thing that breathes life into you? And can I say this? Listen, There's no age to that survey. Yeah, I'm calling you out. High schoolers, there is no age to that. You can deliver in our kids ministry. You can deliver in any one of these ministries. I think that there's there's so many different ways that you can be an influence, even in your own group. I think that group that you sit in every single week is waiting for some of you to rise up. You don't necessarily need all the adults that are with you. I think God wants you to stand up and lead. Amen? All right, if I'm picking on the younger generation, if you ain't dead yet, then God's not done yet. You might have wanted to hand that baton off because you're like, man, I've carried it a long time. What happens when you hand it off? If you're saying, hey, listen, I don't care. I don't carry the baton anymore. You think, oh, I'm too old to serve. I I guarantee you, you're not too old to pray. And we'll pass that list along to you. One of the things this morning as I was thinking about this service and praying was this. How many of our people in their 20s and 30s even knows someone in their 70s and 80s? I don't think they do. And I don't, know, I don't know what I'm going to make of that. <laughs> I don't think I'm about to, oh, I need to create a program this next week. We're going to create a multi-generational mixer. Like, I'm going to stick to prayer and ministry of the word, all right? <laughs> I just wonder, though, if a younger generation, if maybe you'd be willing to get to know some people in this church who have literally, you, the only reason this place exists is because of their faithfulness and their giving and their faithfulness and serving in this church. God, God bless them. Thank you. And I wonder if there's some people from an older generation who are willing to have conversations, stop people in the lobby and get to know them, even if they're not your age. And let's build this church that is multi-ethnic, multi-generational, because everyone is serving to deliver the whole gospel to the whole world. You can't do everything, but you must Do something. So, how will you serve? Let's bow our heads. Let's pray. Lord, um, I know I'm passionate about this, and forgive me, God, if somehow my passion got in the way of Your message, and I stated something wrong this morning. God, forgive me for that. But I know that you, Your heart, is that everybody is a part of this family. And there shouldn't be anybody sitting on the sidelines because everybody has value and everybody is gifted. And so, God, I pray that somehow you would take that message and sink it deep into our hearts. And maybe even this, God, maybe you're going to call this morning someone who will eventually be a pastor or even a missionary. Or, God, maybe you'll call the next greatest volunteer leader in this church today. So, God, help us. Help us to respond to you, to know what to say yes to and no to. But God, we're here to declare this this morning. We're available to you. We want to be like you. And in that, you came, you sent your son to serve this world by dying on the cross, not so that we could be spectators, but so that we could be family members. So God, help us. Speak to us. Give us your wisdom. Help us to be courageous in stepping out. And if you agree with that, would you say amen?